Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Malcolm Johnson. Malcolm is the relatively new editor-in-chief of Toronto Life magazine, the first such change at this institution in 15 years. Established in 1966, Toronto Life is the preeminent monthly magazine about entertainment, politics, food, and life right here in the center of the universe, the city of Toronto. Malcolm's top challenge is to continue Toronto Life's tradition of staying alert to the cultural moment and bold in its journalistic exposés. Welcome, Malcolm, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you, Andrew. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I am I'm very well to take the last first, uh, and I am at our new office, which is near Keel and Lawrence in Toronto. Um, they've been working on it for a while, and it's more or less ready, so the team is all in here right now. And I did want to ask you, now that we're in this sort of post-pandemic period, what's the status of people working in the office versus working from home? It's a little bit in flux right now. Uh, we're in the office every Thursday for the full day, and then um, people come in as needed. Some of them live closer to here. I live farther from here, uh, but you know they, they could come in as they need it. It's also got a lot of event space and there's a test kitchen for the Chatelaine team. You know, there's, there's lots of stuff here. Um, so some people like to come in. And it sounds like from your comments, this is a brand new uh, office, brand new facility. Yeah, for many years we were down on um, church uh, at Queen and um, uh, in a great sort of uh, heritage building that had been renovated. So it was like brick and glass and wood, it was beautiful. but. You know, the pandemic hits and suddenly it's empty. And uh, so they made the decision to move us up here and build a new space. Great. Well, it's always great to start with something fresh. Now, Malcolm, you are a big Toronto Blue Jays fan. Let's jump right into the current headlines. Teoscar Hernandez traded to Seattle for Eric Swanson and Adam Mako. Two viewpoints here before I collect your thoughts. The first comes from Definitely Not Jays Talk host Eric Rosenheck, who says that he is part of the crowd that feels this deal is a precursor to another move. He notes that Swanson had a great 2022 after a decent 2021 and that you can never have enough pitching. The second viewpoint comes from former guest on this podcast and fellow Toronto legend Mike Wilner, who says that although the trade looks underwhelming, Eric Swanson was incredible out of the bullpen last year. Adam Mako was a strikeout machine in high-class A-ball. He also notes that the Jays have freed up over $12 million in salary, and this makes room for a left-handed bat. Malcolm, how do you feel about the trading away of Teoscar Hernandez, <laughs> arguably in his prime? Yeah, I mean, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> oh boy, here we go. <laughs> you know, I think maybe by the time this podcast airs, there might be another move, which might make the whole picture come together. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Brandon Nimmo or another outfielder like that comes into the, to the fold. Um, and if that's the case, you know, you're taking um, a guy on the wrong side of 30 uh, with one year left on his deal, uh, not a great defender, um, and you're moving him for what is the most glaring weakness on the team, which is a, a high leverage reliever. Uh, and you're getting a, a nice prospect in return. Um, I think he had 60 strikeouts over 38 innings last year. I mean, the guy can throw. Um, and, and strikeouts are what this team needs. Um, so I think, you know, with, with trades like that, it's hard to know until the prospect has arrived. Mm -hmm. you, know? you know, you really have to reserve judgment for a few years. 
the hard part is that Teoscar is so likable and yes. he's very good, right? It's painful to let go of a guy who's very good and feels like a part of the fabric of the team, the social fabric of the team. Teoscar is, is still in his prime, absolutely. Uh, but I think a really good GM sort of sees the future now and you can sort of project out, okay, well, what's going to happen next year? We're going mm -hmm. to just let him go. So I think, I think on balance, it's probably a smart trade even though it hurts. I, I think Teoscar is probably my favorite Blue Jay. Hmm. Uh, I just like the way he plays. Uh, I like the way he is in the dugout. Um, he just seems like a gregarious, fun guy who can really hit home runs. Wow. So, so I, was, I, was, I was sad, but I understand it. I'm going to put you in the camp of you're giving it an, a thumbs up in the sense of we're going to use our head, not our heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. That's <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not what we always do with the Leafs, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Let's move on to you, Malcolm. Big changes, February 10th of this year at Toronto Life magazine, as announced by your corporate overlords, St. John's Communications Media. After 14 years as editor-in-chief of Toronto Life magazine, Sarah Fulford was appointed editor-in-chief of McLean's magazine. Now, Sarah was credited with overseeing the Toronto Life brand's editorial revitalization, its transition into the digital age, at the same time, it was announced that you, Malcolm Johnson, had been promoted to Editor-in-Chief of Toronto Life. That's only nine months ago, so I am still safely in the time window to be able to say to you, congratulations. <laughs> so far, so good? So far, so good. No major calamities yet, although who knows, tomorrow's a brand new day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, so I've been at the magazine for 12 years, and really Sarah um, hired me as a junior editor, and she really taught me... Um, how to do magazine making. You know, I had done some smaller roles and, and been uh, involved in journalism at university, but um, this was a chance to work for a major magazine. Uh, and so uh, I was really flattered to be, to be asked to, to take over the magazine. And, you know, the nice thing is there was no, uh, there was no fractious parting between Sarah and me. She's just essentially down the hall, which is really nice. Yeah, that is, that's a great advantage of having everyone in the same building. Malcolm, how do you define your job at Toronto Life as editor-in-chief? Well, you know, it's, 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 I'm, in, I'm in charge of the magazine's uh, sort of brand um, on the editorial side. So what goes in the magazine and how it appears in the magazine, those kinds of choices. Um, and so overseeing a staff of about 15 and helping them do what they do, uh, just sort of being a, a resource for them. Uh, but then there's also the kind of the broader brand engagement uh, and so we're not just a magazine anymore. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're a brand that's very present in the city. We do a lot of events. We have an event tonight. Um, and we also have a lot of platforms that we're very present on TikTok, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, we're sort of trying to be everywhere and to do our thing in the way that kind of feels like it makes sense for us. So my mandate is somewhat broad in that sense, um, but it's still connected to what I love to do, which is, which is the journalism. Mm -hmm. Well, you have stated in the past, you'll always be a reporter at heart and that you have no end of appetite for hearing other people's stories and experiences. With that as a backdrop, let's go all the way back, get the Malcolm Johnson story. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? Sure, I was born in Peterborough, Ontario. Um, mom and dad, older brother, my dad's a civil engineer. Uh, my mom was a veterinarian. And um, we moved to Lakefield, an even smaller town a few okay. years later. And uh, 
uh, I grew up there. It was a pretty idyllic childhood, you know, um, sort of just middle class. We had a, a nice property. We put in a pool when I was a bit older. We were not rich. We were not poor. We were just somewhere in the middle, you know. Um, it was pretty safe upbringing. Yeah. Um, uh, exposed to a lot of different things, played a lot of different sports, was involved in just about everything. Where did you end uh, up going for school? Uh, I went, so for high school. From uh, there for, onwards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For high school, I went to Lakefield College, um, small school in Lakefield. And then I went to, I went traveling for a year after that. And then uh, I went to U of T for university. Yeah. And was that your move to Toronto? And have you been in Toronto ever since U of T? Yeah. So, you know, most kids go from their small town to the big city. I went from my tiny town to London, England, and then all over Europe. So it was a bit of a culture shock in that respect. And then by the time I got to Toronto, it was almost like a smaller city based on, you know, comparison to London. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was when I arrived, 2003. Um, and I've been in Toronto ever since. Now you joined Toronto Life magazine in 2011. How did you end up hooking up with Toronto Life? And what was your first role with the magazine? Uh, so I was working at a smaller publication called um, Post City Magazines, mm -hmm. and I was kind of doing a little bit of everything there. I started as copy editor, and I ended up as the executive editor in, in two and a half years. And I was, I was enjoying what I was learning, but ready for something new. And I gave a call to a friend who I sort of knew through family at, at Toronto Life, and I wondered if they were um, hiring, or I even wondered if I should get out of the industry. I didn't really know. And, and they, the, the friends said that, in fact, they were hiring for the first time in eight years or something, and I should apply. So my work at Post City gave me a pretty good portfolio. Um, not a lot of rigor for me, exactly, but a lot of mm -hmm. experience. And I think Sarah and the other uh, staff at Toronto Life liked what they saw, I guess. Yeah, but, <laughs> obviously so they, they did. <laughs> they liked something. So they, they hired me as um, a junior editor, essentially, editing the front of book. And in magazine speak, that's sort of like the, the, the first editorial section, which is historically kind of smaller, bitsy-piecier, quite voicey. Um, it's like a little entree into the main meal, which is more mm -hmm. of the longer form features. So I did that for about um, four years uh, of learning, you know, that territory, which was really business, sports, politics, um, society, power, architecture, that kind of stuff. I think it's so great. Just, you know, you get that broad coverage and, and as working there, obviously you got exposed to all these different areas. Now in 2015, you were promoted to senior editor and you have been credited with helping craft some of the country's best feature stories. You had topics as diverse as the homelessness crisis, the new world of legal recreational marijuana, sexism in the halls of surgery. Uh, your collaboration with writers has resulted in gold national magazine awards for five years in a row in investigative reporting. And there were some profiles that you were very well known for, two in particular that kind of grabbed my eye, Toronto Blue Jays former star Josh Donaldson and Olympic sprinter Andre de Grasse. Any comments on putting those together? What was the process like? And you, you enjoy working with such well-known people in the Toronto sports scene? Yeah, it's funny. I sort of uh, become the sports guy on staff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When a sports profile comes up, uh, they're like, why don't you write it? Like, sure. Um, but, you know, the nice thing about Toronto Life and what, what we're able to do is that it's so um, various, right? You could, do, you could do an expose on the inhumane conditions inside a jail, and the next day you could be in uh, Alabama with Josh Donaldson eating wings. Um, <laughs> 
or down in, uh, where did I go? Arizona with Andre DeGrasse, uh, watching him sprint and trying to understand the, the, the powerful dynamics of his legs and stuff like that. So it's just, a, it's an amazing job to have that range of options to write about. Um, I'm probably most drawn to uh, investigative journalism personally. Just, mm -hmm. I like the, I like the chase and I like the idea that there's information out there that somebody has and it's my job to get it. And, you know, if you write a profile, often they'll just tell you, but uh, the degree of difficulty is elevated when it's investigative journalism because they, they won't tell you. Um, and so you have to find other ways to get that info. Well, and certainly an investigative piece that you were heavily involved with was a feature called The Hunt for a Killer. This was a true crime piece about the disappearance of Christine Jessup. Uh, at the time, this had been optioned for TV and film development. Anything further to report on that project? Uh, yeah, so it's, it has been uh, optioned and um, they're proceeding with uh, vetting different um, companies who are interested in making it into a documentary. So that one, I don't know if all of your listeners know about the backstory on that one, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty famous case from the 80s where a little nine-year-old girl went missing from uh, outside her home in Queensville, Ontario. And um, there was a, there was a manhunt trying to figure out who did it. They couldn't figure it out. Uh, and then eventually the cops decided that the next door neighbor, Guy Paul Moran had done it. And so they essentially set him up um, to take the fall. Uh, and he, uh, he went to jail. Uh, and after 36 years, uh, he, he was eventually exonerated by DNA, but they did not know who uh, actually did the, the crime. And then uh, two years ago, through this new uh, form of investigative uh, genetic research, they were able to figure out that it was, in fact, definitively not Guy Paul Moran, but instead this gentleman named Calvin Hoover. Um, so I decided to, to tell the definitive story of that whole case because it was now finally, finally finished. So um, I, I spent about a year in and around my normal duties at Toronto Life reporting on peace. And it took a long, long time and a lot of effort, uh, but I was really happy with the, with the outcome. And as you say, this is now going to be a documentary. And do you have any kind of timeline for when it may be uh, available for people to see? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's I can't say the companies that are interested, uh, but it is looking promising. Um, it is one of those cases that is probably Canada's most famous cold case, mm -hmm. and I I suspect that American audiences have no idea about this story, and it's got so many twists and turns over thirty six years. Um, so, I have learned that things in TV and film sometimes go quite slow. Yes, and that's certainly the case here. But there is there is steady progress. And Guy Paul and I talk often on the phone just to check in. I was speaking to him yesterday, uh, just to see where things are at. So he's he's keen to participate in this project too, uh, and so it's it's exciting. But it's it's a little bit slow going. Now it's interesting that you say that. One perspective might be after everything he had to go through, he'd prefer not to talk about it anymore, not to hear about it anymore. But uh, you say he's actually quite interested in seeing it move forward. Yeah, so Guy Paul had essentially sworn off the media because he had, you know, some, some media treated him very well, but others really contributed to the, the tarnishing of his reputation. And so for good reason, he decided that he wasn't going to talk to the media anymore. He was just going to go away and live his life um, after he was uh, freed. So when I decided to take up the story, there was no guarantee he would speak to me either. Uh, mm -hmm. I reached out to his lawyer, and his lawyer said, Geepal doesn't talk to the media. Um, and I said, well, can I just write an email that makes my case? And then he said, yeah, go nuts. 
So I wrote a very long email, gave it many passes over, refined it, uh, and made sure it really spoke from the heart. And I explained what I wanted to do, what I wanted to write, what I thought of his case, what I thought of justice in Ontario, and so on. And I sent that, and um, I waited, and then his lawyer got back to me and said, Paul was impressed by your letter, and it's not a no. I said, oh, okay. Oh, not a no is not, good. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like a yes, exactly. It's not a no. They said, he just needs some time. And I thought, okay, yeah, no problem. I can give him time, like a week or two weeks. And I said, how long do you need? And he said, uh, six months. <laughs> oh, boy. So I, I put it on the back burner, and then six months later, my phone rang, and it was, uh, it was Keepall. And so wow. I went, yeah. Wow. Well, uh, as you say, you got to build a relationship. And I guess the relationships take time. They do. Yeah. You can't, you can't do effective journalism without access to people and you yep. can't get access to people without building a genuine relationship with them based on, based on trust. And so we, we went slowly and I met with them and we, we had a good rapport and I would say we're friends now. We, like I say, we talk often. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting, Malcolm is, you know, as you have said investigative reporting and being a reporter is kind of at your core, but with your new role, you've had to take on some managerial responsibilities, business responsibilities. So tell us a little about St. Joseph communications. The media group is one of their divisions. Would you describe kind of is Chatelaine McLean's and Toronto life? It's core titles. Yeah. There's also fashion. Um, there's also Quill and choir, Ottawa magazine, Canadian business, uh, seven or eight titles all told. Is each title a business in and of itself in its own silo? And how much does uh, St. John's St. Joseph Communications get involved with kind of your daily work? Each each one is its own uh, brand. It's it's uh, all the re editors report to the same person, so I wouldn't describe it as its own business exactly. There are many different areas of the St. Joseph Media uh, business. It's a printing company. There, there's a, a lot of, like a content studio. There's a lot of things they do. But on the media side, we're all one business with various brands. Um, the, 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 our owner and ownership does not get involved with editorial, which is a real, which is really nice. They, mm -hmm. they trust us to do our thing. And, um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of trust there. Hey Toronto, a West Coast IPA is a great idea when the days are getting shorter and the air a bit colder. Take in the aromas of brown sugar and savor the blend of pine, citrus, and earthy cereal in Henderson Brewing's Escape Art West Coast IPA. Available now at their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Rail Path. Or order now at hendersonbrewing.com. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. I think more than any other media brand, Toronto Life really at its core has to understand what Toronto is, what Toronto is about. But there is a perhaps not uncommon observation amongst a casual Torontonian. Toronto Life represents the rich, the elite. It's not for me, the everyday resident of the city. How would you respond to that? Is Toronto Life for everybody? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, um, the truth of what we do is that it is a little bit of everything. And I think sometimes people don't like one thing or another and decide that's that's all what we do. But if you look at our magazine, if you look at our online coverage, we'll do everything from the most expensive place to eat in the city to a series on how to get the best uh, meals <laughs> under $10 in Weston. You know, we'll, we do everything. We do, you know, our, our next cover story is all about rental rage, how crazy it is out there for people to get 
uh, a decent rent, rent, rental, and there's incredible housing insecurity, and it is a huge problem. And so we'll cover that, but we don't cover that exclusively. And I think that's maybe where the disconnect comes in. We'll cover that with the same rigor and attention. We'll cover, you know, the new seven million dollar place that's just opened up with the cashmere, everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's just it's just how we approach the city. The city is many things, and we try to cover all those many things. Um, but I, I hold no grudges to anybody that thinks it's for the rich. You know, <laughs> there's many people with many different opinions and you, you sort of respect all of them. Now, we love on this podcast to go behind the scenes, see how the sausage gets made. It's November 2022 as we record this. How far forward are you focused, Malcolm? Like what month edition are you working on now? Yeah, our, our December issue just came out. Um, so that is our kind of a year, our year end uh, look back. Uh, the year that's passed and our we do uh, most influential Torontonians uh, cover so this year there uh, that was uh, our number one was Simu Liu who is uh, you know the amazing incredible Simu Liu Mr. Everywhere uh, so he he did a, a great um, feature interview with us uh, sat down with our writer Sarah List for a long time and she produced a really nice long-form profile um, he participated in some social media stuff with some video with us, and we did a great cover shoot. Then we did the other 49 incredible people who make up, you know, the most influential kind of core of the city this year. Uh, so that one is on newsstand now. Um, right now, the team is working hard away at our January issue. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also working on February and March at the same time. And then in general terms, we have a lot of stuff plotted out uh, for the rest of the year. But often what we do is we'll move it around, right? So this piece isn't coming in in time. Usually with respect to the features, this is that, you know, there's been a source backed out or there's a legal problem or we're just not sure or the writing's not where we, we're quite where we need it to be. And so we'll move it to another month and then you got to move something up or invent something new. So that's a constant um, challenge that is true of every publication anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but in general sense, we are working many months ahead all the time. And do you enjoy that kind of uh, balancing and rebalancing act that the uh, constant, nothing's set, everything's always kind of in motion? Do you like that or do you just well, find it it's, stressful? <laughs> it's certainly exciting. <laughs> you know, the constant challenge for a monthly magazine is to, is to feel current, even though you're planning far ahead. And those are sort of opposing uh, tensions. How do you how do you plan the year ahead when you don't know what's going to happen? You know, our goal is to make every reader who opens up the magazine or goes online to feel like this is a this is a news magazine in, in many respects. It's a news magazine that is deeply reported and it has the best writing, but it's newsy in the sense that it's reflecting change in the city. You know, not not just change in a general yearly sense, but change like as it's happening. Um, so that is that is a challenge that we try to meet every day. In particular, you mentioned the uh, annual 50 Most Influential People in Toronto list. Uh, do you get aggressive lobbying for this, for a certain person <laughs> to be on or off? Do you get hate mail? Why did you put this person in? Or is, is it taken for what it should be, a, uh, a lighthearted kind of look at who's who? Do we get... Do we get lobbying? Yes, we do. <laughs> you do. You know what? I don't mind it. You know, if somebody can make a convincing case that I'm not against putting them in, you know, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't have to be our discovery. Uh, often PR people will be like, when does that list come out? Or like December issue. They're like, when's your deadline? Or like, well, anytime now. And then they send something in and make the case for their CEO. And I have no problem reviewing it and say, yeah, that is actually a really compelling case. Let's put him or her on the long list and then we'll 
debate the merits of that sort of pitch. Do we get uh, hate mail? Um, yeah, we do. <laughs> yes. We do, we do. Um, you know, people are opinionated and people feel like if it's not their person that they would have picked, then, then it is inherently wrong and they want to tell us. And I mean, sometimes we say, yeah, you know, that is a good pick and we should keep an eye on that person for next year. Or sometimes they'll point out something, you know, there weren't enough people from this sector or it's not diverse enough. And those are totally valid um that's totally valid feedback as well. And so we'll take that into account. I mean, we don't think that we're uh, sitting on high decreeing influence. We are, <laughs> yeah. we're, uh, we're, uh, we're open to feedback all the time. And, and what's harder, Malcolm, is it to rank the top three, one, two, three, do you spend more time on that? Or is it who's going to make 49 and 50 and who's left off at 51, 52? <laughs> Uh, one to fifteen is the is the hardest. Yeah. Well, I should say one is the hardest because <laughs> yeah. that's it's got to check more boxes. But but one to fifteen is where the ranking is extremely important. After that, it's it's less. You know, the difference between maybe like sixteen and eighteen or something. It gets a little easier to rank after that. Uh, but definitely one to fifteen is, <laughs> is the hard zone. Definitely. Now, Malcolm, you talked a little about the transition in this new world order of print to digital. Now, I'm not on TikTok, but Toronto Life, uh, you just alluded to, is on TikTok now. How do you leverage social media and how do you manage this kind of transition, if you want to use that word, from print to digital? Yeah, totally. I mean, the way we look at it is that our content is stuff we're really proud of. We feel like we put a lot of work uh, into our features, especially, and we feel confident that if we get that content in front of the right people, they'll love it. And in this day and age, that is the challenge, distribution, right? How do you get your, your stuff out there? A really good example is a feature we just published online about the, the Cartoon Brothers. I don't know if you saw that one. It's called the Ferrari mm -hmm. Fugitives Online. Mm -hmm. So we put that piece online and it did modestly well. You know, we were happy with it. It got some, some traction. Uh, but then it got picked up by a, a bunch of aggregators in the States. It was on the front page of Pocket, um, Sunday Long Reads, uh, email newsletter um, and suddenly this thing went supernova we can we can track it on our our you know back end and just you could see it just go like this and then all of a sudden just like this and it stayed like that for days um, so distribution is really the key to the game for us it's not it's not like our challenge is quality of content it is getting the, the content in front of people um, and so you know one obvious way to do that is to improve our social media reach um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. These are platforms that we're putting everything on because we want to get it out to people. Uh, it's, it's a little bit maddening because the algorithms change and they don't tell you and you're not sure what to do. And it's, it's mm -hmm. sort of insane, to be honest. Uh, just how much power Facebook, for example, holds over uh, who sees what. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a constant challenge for us to just hack the algorithm however we can and get it out there. Uh, now, do you have Toronto Life specific people working on social media or does St. John's Communication kind of have a social media department that handles all your different brands? Yeah, each brand mostly has its own social media person. Um, we've got a digital editor who's really in charge of all of that stuff. St. Joseph Media Communications has uh, developers who help us create, uh, you know, special online uh, modules and, and coding and stuff like that. But we have our own digital team. Now, you talked a lot about the brand, the Toronto Life brand. 
How do you see expanding that brand? What's next for the brand itself, Toronto Life? Yeah, I mean, we'll continue to do more events because events are a powerful way to bring a magazine from just a thing on your coffee table or a thing you click on to something that you can actually engage with. Uh, Before the pandemic, we were doing something insane, like 24 events a month through our Toronto Life Insider program, and people just love it. Um, And I think they get different things out of it in the same way I was alluding to earlier that, you know, Toronto Life is many things. You know, you might bring in someone who just loves restaurants and is so obsessed with like hearing a Q&A, a live Q&A with Patrick Chris or something like that. Um, but other people are really interested in the real estate market. Other people just want to network. Other people think of it as sort of like a dating scene. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's great. It's great. And so I've done some Q&As where you get to meet the readers or get to meet the people who are just interested in the city. And this is a, this is a way to do it. So events are a big part of our future. You know, the, the, the other big push for us is to ramp up our digital operations um, we are we are a print our, we are owned by a printer we are very print focused and we put a lot of love and care into making our magazine beautiful the kind of thing that people can sort of uh, sit with for a long time and really enjoy the the, the artistry um, so we're not going to bring that down by any means but what we're trying to do is bring our digital operation up to the same place and so what that means is uh, commissioning more stuff that is uh, web only. Um, so, you know, a lot of our features, we spend the time and the money for print. We're now spending the time and the money on just digital. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're seeing a fair bit more of that. Uh, we're also making the interface for when we put these features online much more engaging. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen on the New York Times, the Washington Post or the Atlantic, if you go through and you scroll down, they move and... You know, mm-hmm. waterfall emerges and then snow and then you keep scrolling. And, you know, it's just like insane. Like the amount of yeah. um, art that goes into making these things more engaging is just stunning. And so we're trying to get to that same place. And and that enters a topic of paywalls. Do you have an opinion on paywalls in general? And, and do you see the trend? It seems like there was a time when there was there were significant paywalls. They all disappeared. Now they're kind of creeping back. Where do you stand on that whole issue? It's a tricky one, you know. It it touches on on bigger bigger issues than my pay grade, but you yeah. know, there's um there's there, there's there's a there's a war uh, on on journalists happening, you know. Like uh, there there really is a war on their reputation and what they do. I mean, you see it on Twitter. Elon Musk has a lot of disdain for what journalists do because I think he doesn't like what they say. Um, but journalism is a profession, and people take it very seriously, and. Um, What's happening is that there's less um, there's less trust in media, and so to ask people to pay for it is a risky endeavor because they might just say, "Oh, I'm not sure anyway." Um, uh, it's a worrying trend. Uh, whether that answers the question about paywalls, I'm not sure exactly, but I do know that there's an existential threat um, being lobbed at, at at media in general um, with respect to what we do and how we do it. Uh, which which is is something that I think should worry everybody in media, but also everybody who consumes media, that we need a broad base of people to pay for what we do in order to stay solvent yeah. and, to, and to, bring, to bring people the truth. Well, we've seen how the quality of so many platforms has dropped when there's there's no money in it. I guess this is a question for the corporate office, so to speak, but has there ever been or will there ever be a Vancouver life, Montreal life? Could you extend the brand that way? Yeah, I don't know that. It, that is a question for the the, the, the corporate <laughs> team. Um, but certainly, the more magazines, the more journalism, the merrier, in my opinion. Uh, 
we need more of it everywhere. And you talked a little about your Toronto Life Insiders program. I get the sense this is a way for you to build community. And, and how important is that to you to really connect with your individual readers? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. You know, living in a city, you can often feel like you're part of something, but it also can be a, a deeply alienating experience, right? You're surrounded by people, but often you feel anonymous and you're just sort of all these strangers around you. Uh, which is maybe the, the sort of um, dichotomy of city living, um, surrounded by people yet sometimes feeling alone. So what I love about our insider program is that it helps bring people together, you know, that you can feel like there's, there's sort of an anchor for your Toronto experience. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what Toronto Life can do for people. It can do that through the magazine, just in the sense of we're helping people navigate the city, figure out the best places to go, um, the, the best experts, the best shoes to buy, the best secrets of parks to go to. I mean, we just try to do a little bit of everything to help readers. Um, but then when you take that off the page and into the room and you do an insider thing, then it, it's, it feels very real. And so a yeah. lot of people have found community in our insider program, which is, which is amazing. It is more important than ever. I'm, I'm Toronto born and bred, and I, but I understand the feedback that you get when you're an adult moving to Toronto, it's it's not the easiest thing to get into the life, make friends, and certainly to have a community would, uh, I could see how that would appeal to so many people. You know, you know, it's, you remind me, my wife, she's also from Peterborough, and when and she went to med school, she came to Toronto to live with me, and she got on the, the subway, and she, it was, you know, her first week there, and she was on the subway reading the paper, and she finished a section, and she saw someone looking at her, and so she offered the paper to him, like, do you want to read it? And he said, you're not from here, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not. But you know, it, it's it's funny that like, why not? Why can't yeah. you share your paper with someone? I, I sort of am charmed by the idea of small town living in a big city. Like, why shouldn't it be that way? Yeah. Well, you and I, or your wife and I, I'll bring it back because I'm, I'm laughing because that's what I do. I go to the diner <laughs> and I grab somebody's or I, I pass mine on. That's right. I want to ask you about the New Yorker. Are you a big fan? And I don't know if there's any relation between the way the New Yorker is set up and published and the way Toronto Life is set up and published. I don't know if there's any kind of connection, but do you, do you, are you a fan of the New Yorker and how mm -hmm. does that influence you or, or not? Yeah, absolutely. New Yorker is probably one of the standard bearers for, for magazine journalism. They have, I would say, probably the highest standards uh, in terms of rigor when it comes to copy editing and language and editing. Um, they have the best writers you know, they are different from us in many respects. I think they consider themselves more literary, um, a little, uh, I don't want to characterize, <laughs> but let's just say it's a great magazine. Yeah. And I, of course, I'm a big fan. Um, yeah, we, we, we steal lots of their DNA in lots of ways. Um, I think magazines like Vanity Fair have a fair bit of influence on us as well. And then leading city magazines like New York Magazine, um, there it's it's terrific magazine as well i think what we like to do is probably steal the best parts of each of those um you know i love new york magazine's voice and and a sense of fun mm -hmm. uh, i love the way that the new yorker takes a very somber serious look at important issues and can really deliver a definitive article on something mm -hmm. uh, vanity fair has a lot of glamour and glitz and sometimes that's beautiful i mean if you look at our Simulu cover, it's got that sort of, it's got that luster to it. Um, so, you know, magazines are a very incestuous industry. We steal from each other all the time, but, but New Yorker absolutely is a big influence. 
as to how their how their business operates i don't i don't really know i assume you know you sort of assume that all the big magazines do it differently but i think the truth is we all do it very similarly <laughs> yeah and you can see just on the business side of it i noticed the cover price of the new yorker continues to creep up which is mm. frankly the only way they're going to be able to fund the quality of work they do let's move on outside of the editorial office let's sure. talk about you as a person growing up in peterborough how'd you become such a huge blue jay fan um, I played baseball every chance I got. Um, my dad wasn't a big, I mean, he, he played a little bit, but my brother and I are very close in age and we look very similar and we're sort of the same person. <laughs> and whenever we could, we would go play baseball. I wanted to play for the Blue Jays when I was a kid and, um, you know, that's all I did. And then, uh, I remember in 95, the strike happened and suddenly everything stopped and I, I, I moved on to basketball um, and basketball became my thing for many years. Mm -hmm. But then I don't think I ever really left baseball behind as my, you know, my true sport. I do remember in university, I, I was, I tried to do well in school. And so I actually did a blackout period where I did not watch sports. I didn't watch TV for almost all of university. And so wow. I, when I talked to my friends and we talk, you know, baseball trivia, if it's between like four years, I have no idea the answers because I was that was during my blackout. Wow, that's yeah. that's discipline. Yeah. A little gap in your uh, in your in your knowledge of that sport. Were were you a big enough fan that you would go down for spring training? Uh, yeah, we went when I was a, a kid. Um, we have grainy old video of Devon White hitting a first pitch over the outfield wall in Dunedin, um, and you know then there were years where I didn't go uh, through my kind of teens. Uh, but then as a young man, I started to go with my friends uh, pretty regularly um, down for like a boys trip. Yeah. Uh, then I had kids and that sort of tapered off. But uh, I'm headed back in March for another round uh, of spring training. So I'm back. I'm excellent. Back. Well, it's, it's, it's not only is a right of spring, but it's a great way to great excuse to get down to Florida and uh, enjoy the Blue Jays in a smaller environment. Oh, it's, it's awesome. You, you know. It's one thing to go to the, the the Sky Dome or the Rogers Center and see the the players from afar, but when you're down there at whatever it's called now, uh, TD Park or something, you can yeah. you can go right up to the fence and you know at like the fourth inning when Vladdy's done, you just walk along and you can say something to him. So it's pretty yeah, neat. it is pretty neat. He'll never yeah. be more relaxed than then. Mm -hmm. Now, Malcolm, you once wrote an anti-money laundering textbook for bank workers. What did this experience confirm for you about your feelings for writing and for finance? Yeah, so that was my first job after university, and it was uh, it was essentially in the wake of 9-11. You know, banks now had to be a little more uh, rigorous about the rules regarding anti-money laundering. So, you know, if somebody comes into the bank with a duffel bag full of $10,000 covered in you know, white powder, that is, that is bad. So my job was basically take legislation and turn it into something a little more digestible for, for bank employees. Um, so it was fine, but it, it was also reminded me that I don't really want to be in the world of finance, even if it's kind of finance adjacent is it wasn't really my favorite thing. So, you know, there is value in knowing what you don't want to do. Absolutely. That's how you find out. Now you must get asked this daily. What is your advice for up-and-coming writers? Um, to read a lot 
you know, to you sort of find yourself stealing the style of different writers, and then that sort of becomes part of you, and then you move on to a different writer, and you steal theirs, and then over time you kind of develop your own voice. To to be curious, uh, to 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 trust yourself, you know, a lot of great stories, they're not written in you know signs with blinking lights that this is your story. Mm-hmm. It's just a little idea that you have, or it's something you thought about on the subway, or. You see the same thing three times and you think maybe that's a story that is how journalists come up with their stories like this is this uh, you have to be alert to those things but you also have to trust yourself that if you're interested in and you're noticing it there's something there and you, you should pursue it you gotta dig mm-hmm. yeah um you have to pick up the phone you know people often just will email and yeah it's really really easy to ignore emails um people do it all the time but if you can if you can call them they're much less likely to dodge you if you can go to their place of work or you know <laughs> ask them directly uh knock on their door they're they're probably going to say yes and if they say no then oh, no problem you just leave them alone i mean what tr- changes we're talking about like i get my my kid's only 15 but i don't think she knows that the phone can make phone calls and mm. the thought of going up to someone's door that would just be weird so i, I wonder mm-hmm. how this next cohort of uh uh, young employees and young writers is going to react to this uh, kind of s- s- practical advice. Yeah, totally. I mean, we have we have staff or interns, and you know, their 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 immediate impulse is to just is just to email. And if they didn't hear back, you're like, did you call them? Like, no, no, I emailed. They're like, okay, we'll call them. <laughs> Which I understand. You know, this is like text is the the way that kids operate, but it is not the way that you get somebody to talk to you. In your role and in your job, you get to meet some interesting people. I do have to ask you to drop some names. Have you had any interesting celebrity interactions in your time at Toronto Life? Oh, there's been so many Toronto celebrities that I can't even count them. Uh, the most sort of uh, globally famous probably was Mark Wahlberg, who I interviewed. He was pretty fun. I have interviewed so many people over the years. I mean, a lot of politicians. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, a lot of athletes. I mean, Josh Donaldson was a fun one. Andre DeGrasse, um, Milos Raonic. Uh, gosh, the, the list is long. Uh, so long that I'm drawing a blank. I can't hey. name any of them. Well, Malcolm, is there anyone who you met who really kind of blew you away? Like, were they were even better than you thought they would be? I was. I remember Andre DeGrasse being so astounded by how fast and light he was. You know, obviously you expect it, and you've seen him on TV, but then. I went down to Arizona and he was filming a Gatorade commercial and he was just doing light warm up sprints. And I was just done by how, you know, we see people run all the time. We know how yeah. to do it. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. I've run myself. Uh, but then you watch uh, Andre DeGrasse do it and he's just, it's like he's floating, but he's also propelled by this insane motor that you can't see anywhere. Like it's just, it sort of defied physics. Um, so I remember being really, stunned by just how fast and light and easy he he seemed that's one of those things you have to see in person it really Mm -hmm. blows you away yeah and then i filmed it just so i'd have references (laughs) yes and i just remember even on on the the footage it didn't really do it justice you just have to be there you have to see it Uh, now one of the things you're famous for at toronto life is your eating and drinking guides and your dining guides so you'd be the right guy to ask but i want hidden gems here malcolm Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Do you have a hidden gem? Maybe whether it's in your neighborhood or something you've discovered in the last little while, anywhere you can recommend? 
Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So my wife and I went to Lake Inez, which is um, where is it? It's on Girard near Coxwell. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've been there, but it was wonderful. Uh, small plates of I don't even know the origin of the sort of cuisine. I don't think they try to pin it down. It's just sort yeah. of like indescribable, but delicious and very inventive and very fun. Uh, I loved the vibe of the room. It wasn't trying to be too, you know, into itself. Uh, the servers were all very laid back, but very knowledgeable. The food was delicious. Uh, it wasn't insanely expensive. Um, that was a that was a real treat. We both left saying we'll definitely be back. Uh, That's pretty good. Yeah, that one was really fun. Uh, let me think here. My favorite lunch. Or even anywhere that grabbed your attention that's kind of under the radar for Toronto, you'd say. There's a place on Danforth East uh, that, that was really incredible. We went there. Actually, Sarah Fulford and I um, and two of my colleagues went there. It's beside the Wren. <laughs> the name's just escaping me right now. <laughs> but I can look it up if you want. <laughs> Um, but we went there and it was just awesome. The food was incredible. The drinks were incredible. The wine list was incredible. It's a really small room. Um, and, uh, they've really, it's, it's a little bit more polished than uh, okay. Lake, Lake Inez. Uh, but it's not hoity toity. It is, it's just a, it's just a great meal. Um, so that one, the, the wood owl, I knew it would come to me. The Excellent. wood owl, the wood owl, <laughs> go to the wood owl, go to Lake Inez. <laughs> Uh, and then for breakfast, I, I really like um, a place down on the uh, on Queen in the East End uh, that was uh, the, our cover uh, uh, of our April issue called Mira Mira. Okay. Uh, the food isn't sort of like high dining, but it's just a really fun menu. Um, and it's sort of a diner fare, but a little bit elevated. It's close to the beach. There's a nice patio. It's a really bright kind of tropical room. And, and it's a good place to go. It won't break the bank. All right. Those are three really good ones. As we get closer to the end, and I very much appreciate your time, Malcolm, what's next for Toronto Life? Uh, just just uh, trying to do our best, every issue, every web post, um, trying to raise the game digitally, trying to do a little bit of everything to bring readers the kind of quality and diversity that they've come to know. Uh, to stay on top of uh, emerging trends, to feel like we're a real resource for Torontonians to know what's really going on in their city, to continue to keep their trust and to earn the trust of new readers that what they're reading in the magazine is, is true. Not many people know that we fact check every word in the magazine. Um, and then also to just push new initiatives. You know, some of those are under wraps right now, but uh, we want to just keep keep uh, expanding what we do. That's Excellent. the plan. Yeah. Keep growing the brand. Well, that's, that's great. Right. And where can we best follow you and follow Toronto Life? Toronto Life is at, at Toronto Life on almost all platforms. I'm not much of an exciting follow. I'm more of a consumer, <laughs> although I think it's at Malk Johnston on Twitter is... Uh, is where I, where I hang out. Uh, but at this stage, I'm more of a, more of a consumer of other people's information than a giver of my own, at least on social media. All right. Well, that's great. Well, I appreciate your time. And Malcolm, I want to wish you a continued success with Toronto Life. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure.
And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Malcolm Johnson, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.